This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Let me open with a quote from Antoine Beauchamp. The primary cause of disease is in us, always in us. After that quote, is there any point in us continuing this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, there, there is little to discuss, but I, I like to hearken back to the law of cause and effect, right? Which uh, really comes from the ancient uh, hermetic and alchemical tradition that for every effect, there's a cause and every cause has an effect. And it, it's really kind of the uh, the answer that Beauchamp is giving is to that question, right? What is the cause of illness? And that it, it is intrinsic. Uh, however, it not the way that, that uh, you might think that the body manufactures it. Uh, it has to be put there, right? And that's the the really the root cause is that we put the element or uh, or our behavior is such that it uh, introduces the cause to our body. It doesn't just um, happen by you know magic or the forces of nature, uh, unless we're prey to a predator. Why are we having a conversation about viruses, virology, germs, when this was established 150 years ago? <laughs> well, you know, there are many types of knowledge that uh, have not made it clearly through the ages. And over the last, I'd say about 100 years since the Flexner report and the onset of what many refer to as Rockefeller medicine, or, you know, the modern allopathic model of uh, cut, burn, poison, that we have had this paradigm um, been presented as fact or as a consensus um, and, and that it's been utilized uh, as the justification for many of the therapies and, and much of the financial success of the you know, medical establishment. And so we all have grown up, right, being told that this is how health and disease work based upon that model. And we never really thought about, oh, you know, well, how did that become established? You know, how do we know that? Um, we, we do in our, even in our compulsory schooling, right? We learn about the scientific method, but it is not really explained fully, but we all are familiar with at least the steps of, you know, developing a hypothesis, carrying out uh, a experimental procedure, looking at the results and then interpreting them in order to learn about nature. And in fact, really what you can learn from the scientific method is, is about cause and effect relationships in nature, right? You observe natural phenomenon like illness in animals. And then we can uh, use these kinds of experiments to determine the cause. But we never asked to see what is the how the scientific method was applied to the main um, aspects of nature that we're told that are understood in a factual basis as this way or that way, and and that of course includes the germ theory of disease. So when you know the baby is sneezing and has a fever, for example, we instruct all the children to stay away right? Because you'll catch it, right? It being the germ that is coming out of the baby and their snot and sneezes and coughs. 
etc. And we just uh, accept that as proven fact and never say, you know, hey, what, what were the experiments done to establish that? Because if we did ask that question, which is exactly what I asked at the onset of the, you know, COVID uh, pandemic, um, we would have a very, very different understanding of our health and disease. In 1935, somebody by the name of Wendell Stanley isolated the first virus. Well, I'm not uh, really sure about that experiment. Um, now, it, it also depends on, of course, what your definition of a virus is, because at that point in time, my understanding is that they were able to isolate bacteriophages from uh, cultures of bacteria. And bacteriophages are uh, very, very small particles that can only be seen with an electron microscope, but they, they actually exist in reality and they can be isolated in the true sense of the word, meaning purified. So you can look at microscope images of bacteriophages and see you know, that they have a very distinct shape. They kind of look like alien spaceship insects. Okay, and everybody can go on your search engine and look up uh, these images. And they, you can see nothing but these particles in the entire field of the microscope. So in other words, nobody has to hunt around through thousands of images to find a particle. Any particles that they see are all identical. And uh, so it may be that the, the scientists you're referring to actually did this experiment. Um, now, bacteriophages, though, are not said to cause disease in animals. Now, there, there's different views about actually what they are. And originally, they're named as being bacteria eaters, phage meaning eat. And if you observe them in a bacterial culture, it, it does appear as if they are eating the bacteria because the bacteria seem to disappear. However, what's been learned subsequently is that the bacteria actually turn into the phages and that this is like some kind of resistant form that is when there's adverse environmental conditions, um, the bacteria will revert to in order to survive, similar to spores, uh, but even more uh, durable. Now, so these things have been repeatedly able to be you know, purified in the manner that I described and, and in various bacterial cultures in the laboratory um, and shown to actually exist. And since they've had pure samples of these, they've been able to actually um, do an analysis of what they're made of, right? Sim similar yeah. to if you found, a, an, you know, a new species of uh, frog, you know, and you then dissected it and did biochemical analysis to see, you know, or does it have different proteins than the other frogs, right? You'd be able to do that experiment having the actual thing. Uh, didn't Beauchamp refer to something similar uh, as pleomorphism, I think? Well, that's a little bit different, but you're right. It is similar because um, he observed a very, very, very tiny uh, particle also, um, but it didn't have the bacteriophage uh, characteristic shape. And he observed these actually in, in living uh, specimens. So looking using a type of microscope that he could look at living tissue. Um, and uh, I believe he called them uh, um, microzyma. In other words, for, you know, tiny bodies. And 
he observed that these um, could change shape and into different forms of microorganism, including bacteria and yeast forms. And uh, he did some interesting experiments. Uh, for example, he was studying fermentation. And fermentation, you know, is when microorganisms like yeast and bacteria turn uh, usually sugar into something else. Like this is how beer and wine are made, right? And many other things. And a lot of the experiments he did was with invert sugar, like turning sugar into grape sugar or invert sugar. And he found that this process would take place even when you did not um, uh, introduce wild microorganisms in the air into the experiment. When you did it in a, a sterile and closed system, that intrinsic to the plant material that was going to be fermented were these microzymas and they could turn into the organisms that would actually carry out the fermentation. And he even found that when he used natural chalk versus chalk that was manufactured in a, um, you know, a, a facility like, in or, you know, not made from, uh, the natural ore or of chalk, uh, the, the, the mineral, that the natural chalk could carry out fermentation because it had these microzymas in it, even though it's a, you know, considered an inorganic uh, mineral, uh, whereas the chalk from the you know, chemical plant uh, did not uh, conduct fermentation. And then he studied under the microscope and other scientists followed this up and found that these microzymas are essentially like a microbial type of stem cell, that they go through a cycle and they can change uh, shape and form into different uh, types of uh, cells, or, you know, we would call them different species of bacteria or yeast or fungus that could actually undergo or carry out different types of recycling or saprophytic uh, functions like they do in nature. So in other words, break down damaged material, eat it, turn it into the basic elements that can be uh, reused, you know, by other organisms. Andy, what is a virus? Well, the, the definition that's given in uh, modern uh, biology and, and virology is essentially that it's, and I'll, I'll give you kind of the fancy language and then I'll translate that into English, but it's a, a replication competent uh, particle. So that means, right, it's a, it's a particle, it's an actual thing, right? It's not just information or an idea, right? It's an actual physical particle and it can replicate or reproduce, okay? And it needs a host cell, we're told, in order to reproduce. It can't just do it completely on its own, right? So it's kind of like a parasite in that respect. And that it, it has a shell, right? Or a membrane, if you will, a, a boundary. Um, and inside it contains genetic material and possibly proteins, okay? That allow it to carry out its function. And that, that's pretty much the textbook uh, definition. Now, the part about it, replicating inside of a host is the part that leads to the theory of how it causes disease. Okay. So that the, you know, what, what we're told is that these virus particles just exist out there in nature or in other organisms, uh, in other hosts and that they, um, invade those host cells, make copies of themselves, right? Reproduce in, in huge numbers and, and then essentially cause the host cell to explode um, 
releasing all those particles and then they all infect other cells that are in the adjacent area. And then once they're, you know, expelled from the body, like through a cough or a sneeze, right, then they can get into another host and do the same thing and bring about disease. That's really what, you know, I was taught in medical school and uh, as a child and in, and in biology and college, um, et cetera. And, you know, there's more to the story, of course, uh, about how they use their genetic material and, and such and integrate with the host cell. Um, but, um, you know, that's all based upon this, this definition. If a virus hasn't been isolated in real life, what does isolation mean? Well, I like to just think about this in a, a very simple way, which is if we were going to, you know, set out as like, let's say we are scientists, right? And we want to, uh, we have a theory that there's some, you know, microscopic or submicroscopic organism that's uh, causing these people to get sick, right? Like, let's say it's uh, causing them to have pneumonia, right? Like they say uh, COVID did. So what would we do to find it, right? Well, we would go to the sick people and we would uh, say, okay, they're having pneumonia, so it's in their lungs, right? We can get x-rays or CAT scans and see their lungs are inflamed or, you know, um, have various uh, findings. And so then we can go into their lungs and take out either fluid where like you do an irrigation, it's called a BAL, and they did do that um, in, in some of these tests. Or we could take a biopsy, like, take, like let's find where the damaged tissue is in there and just take a piece of the tissue, okay? And then we would, then we would examine that under the microscope and given the way that we're told viruses work, we, could, we should expect to see just tons and tons of virus particles because they've right, taken over cells, made mil millions of copies, then invaded millions of adjacent cells, done the same process right over and over to produce this pneumonia. So we should be able to find them there. Like if, it, if we say bacteria cause pneumonia, right? Because that's another theory that bacteria cause pneumonia. They can do this and actually find bacteria. So it's not that, you know, surprising, right? It's like, now, you know, that doesn't establish causation. It's just the first step. Let's find the organism and show that the organism actually exists. So for bacteria, we can find them in people's diseased tissue, Right. And that's how the whole germ theory really developed was after the microscope was invented. So let's see if we can find the virus in this tissue. Now, back in the late 30s and 40s and early 50s, after they invented the electron microscope, they tried to look for viruses, just like I described, in the tissues of sick hosts, either animals or humans. And they never found this, uh, you know, um, a treasure of all these virus particles, right? In fact, they never found anything unique in any of the tissue samples. But what they did observe was all kinds of particles that were heterogeneous that essentially represented what happens when cells undergo the dying process, is that they break apart into little little particles, just like if we you know, exploded a building, afterwards we would come back uh, with a bunch of trash bags or metal containers and we would basically compartmentalize all the waste and then we would cart it off, 
right? And our cells, when they die, they do the same thing. And so they were able to observe that. And that ultimately led to this field of exosome research, actually, uh, because at least some of those particles are considered to be exosomes. But they never found the smoking gun of a virus. And they did do an experiment later on. So they, in my, to my knowledge, the first uh, scientist that did a modern virus isolation where they looked at, you know, specifically what would be called a virus that causes a disease in humans was uh, John Enders. And he actually developed a process for manufacturing the polio vaccine. And it was thought that if you were going to grow a virus in the laboratory, that you would have to do it in the same kind of cells that it infects in the animal. So for polio, it infected the spinal cord, supposedly. So they would have to really grow it in spinal cord cells or nerve cells. They're very difficult to grow in the laboratory, even without, you know, an alleged virus being present. So it was very difficult to you know, manufacture or grow the virus, uh, meaning that they really weren't successful. So he got the idea of using fetal cells, actually, because they're much easier to grow in the laboratory. And he was able to put diseased spinal tissue from polio patients in fetal cell cultures and not kill the cell cultures, but make, make them start showing signs of disease. In other words, the cells breaking down like I described. And he just assumed that that was evidence that the virus was present, not considering that he didn't add a virus to the cell culture. He added chopped up diseased spinal cord, (laughs) which has quite a number of things, right? And it's probably things that are toxic because it's diseased tissue. But nonetheless, that was good enough. And he was able to use that to manufacture a bunch of toxic cell cultures and then strain the cells out. And that was the polio vaccine. And later on, he tried doing this with other diseases like measles. And then suddenly this manufacturing process uh, became called virus isolation. So they would they would take the fluid or the tissue of the diseased person, which is where they they could actually find the virus if it were there. But when they tried to look, they never found it because, you know, the only conclusion you come to is it doesn't exist. But they take this diseased tissue or fluid and add it to these cell cultures. And the ones they use in modern days are genetically modified cell lines. But they were largely from... um, you know, initially from uh, fetuses, in other words, aborted fetuses, uh, so like sort of fetal stem cells. And uh, they use a lot of monkey uh, cell lines from kidneys and various other parts, um, which are genetically modified in the modern, actually Enders, even in the 50s, used a cell line like that. And that has been, you know, now described as virus isolation, even though you know, you're not actually isolating anything uh, out of the out of the sick individual. You you know, you're using a mixture of things, and of course, they add other chemicals to the soup also, which just alone can bring about the same you know changes in the cell culture. So 
so essentially they had to resort to this simulation of what would happen in nature, right? They can't get anything from nature because it doesn't exist. So they make up this story and do this simulation in a laboratory and produce, you know, nonspecific results and say that it proves this or that or the other thing, which was their starting assumption. So this is really, you know, first of all, it's a um, misapplication of the scientific method because one thing is there's no isolated um, uh, variable, right? That that you're testing. There's no independent variable. The right, the variable is a soup of. I mean, what they say is the difference in the experiment, right? Is that they're adding, like for example, with the um, SARS-CoV-2 isolation experiments, right? They take lung fluid. Lung fluid is not an independent variable. It, it contains unknown elements. They don't even know what's in there, right? There's, we know there'll be bacteria in there. There'll be human cells. There'll be chemicals, right, that are from the breakdown of tissue, which in, could include destructive enzymes, um, right? Because there's lysosomes and things like that. They, and there's no effort whatsoever to separate out the viruses from there. So it's not a scientific experiment when, you know, for a scientific experiment, you, the thing that you think causes the effect, you have to have it just, just alone by itself, right? If you, you do an experiment to see, will putting an ice cube in a glass of water, right, uh, change the temperature of the water? You have to have, you know, two glasses of water, one you put an ice cube in, the other one you leave alone right? And you, and you monitor the temperature of both, but you have to have that ice cube by itself, right? You can't have uh, the ice suspended in a block of iron and put that in the glass and monitor the temperature. I thought you were going to bring up Edward Jenner, the father of immunology, Andy. Well, boy, you know, I mean, if you look into that guy, uh, you'll, you'll learn some pretty scary information. And, uh, you know, do you know how he actually administered that vaccine? And, you know, that, that is the original vaccine, right? And it's named that because it was taking the pustule fluid from cow, cows with cowpox, right? And cow is, vodka is the root of cow. So vaccine, and I believe that the virus, you know, the, the, the pretend virus was called vaccinia for smallpox. But he actually, you know, you'd have to make a cut in your skin and then drip this pus from a cow right into the cut on your skin. It's uh, not the way we do modern injections, but, you know, it's pretty, pretty gross. And so many people got ill from that. In fact, you know, if you look at the records uh, from the French government, you, you'll find that uh, the number of smallpox uh, deaths went up precipitously when they were using it, and finally they stopped using it. If you were to look at um, the actual pattern of smallpox, you'd see that the deaths from smallpox went way up uh, while the vaccine was, you know, and, and they, they tried to make it compulsory, uh, by the way. And um, that after they finally stopped using it and, you know, smallpox went away to a, a very uh, uh, low levels. 
at that point. Mm. And, you know, it's not really, you know, another thing about these, uh, you know, smallpox is that if you look through all of the original clinical descriptions and, and uh, you know, Sam and Mark Bailey did an excellent job researching this of various pox illnesses, um, as well as, as a, additional skin eruptions like measles, that you'll see that clinically, they're really no way to distinguish all these things. They're all really probably represent one thing, but by dividing them up arbitrarily, you know, by saying things like, well, if you see the lesions and the forearms, it's this, but if it's only on the trunk, it's this, right? This kind of thing, but otherwise it's identical. Um, you allow to um, fabricate a different virus and a different vaccine and more business and more revenue for each one. But if you go onto the internet, like everybody is able to do and type in virus isolation, EM, electron microscopy, there are thousands of, well, grainy black and white photos apparently of, of viruses. What, what is it that they are seeing? Well, those are all essentially images of damaged or sick cell cultures where various cells, not all the cells in the culture, but some of the cells are undergoing that breakdown process that I described earlier. So they're forming all these different types of particles. And what happens is that they take samples out of that tissue culture flask and they prepare them for electron microscopy, which really requires you to beat the hell out of the tissue. And when you see those images, by the way, you're only seeing various heavy metals that show up under that microscope. You're not seeing proteins or genetic material or lipids or anything like that. All of that's really been removed from the sample and the machine can only see the metal dyes. So that's what you're visualizing directly. Now, in all those cases, they have, like I said, they take this, uh, you know, some samples from the tissue culture that, that is shown to be damaged, and they prepare that, look at, you know, hundreds of images under the microscope or through like all these different fields, and they find cells that are dying, that have particles coming off them and around them in their milieu. And if you saw all the images from a culture that the microscopist looks at, for example, you'd see all different sizes and shapes um, and morphologies. And they would essentially represent all of the, the appearance of the particles that they arbitrarily have called viruses. But the thing is, you could see all of them in all of the samples. But what they do is they pick out the ones they're looking for. So you know that with COVID, they were looking for a coronavirus specifically because they said it was like, you know, SARS from 2003. And so they found particles, right, that they had the characteristic appearance of the coronavirus, right, which the problem is that's never been actually proven to be a coronavirus. And they just point at it right? It's, it's kind of like, I think someone called it point and, and declare, right? So boom, I point at that thing and I declare that it's that virus. But how do I know what it is? Because I'm not doing any tests. I didn't get it out of a sick person directly. 
I got it from a tissue culture grown in the laboratory, right? So even if it really were a virus, how would I know it could have come from the, the culture cells itself, right? Or it could have come from the air in the laboratory, right? It could have many sources, but nevertheless, there's no way to know what this is. Now, if you look at other papers, like there's one from Kidney360, for example, it was looking at electron microscope images of kidney biopsies from people with kidney disease. And it was in the pre-COVID era. And it's kidney tissue, right? It's not lung tissue. Now, they found the same exact particles that are called coronaviruses with the same exact appearance. But they, they said, essentially, they were these you know, extracellular vesicles that were a breakdown product of dying kidney cells. And they said that the protein that was seen as the dots on the outside, right, the so-called corona, was a different protein. It wasn't the spike protein. It was a common protein found in kidney cells. I forget the name of it right now. Clathrin, sorry, clathrin was the name of it. And here's the difference. They found those particles in, directly in the kidneys. They didn't take ground up kidney cells and add them to a monkey cell culture to find those particles. So whatever those particles were, we know they were actually in the body of those people with those kidneys, right? And that's how you would do any scientific experiment trying to find the cause of disease. You would always look directly at the tissue of the sick person's body, right? And, and they do that for every field of medical research except viruses because they have basically created a trick um, to make you think that viruses actually exist when in reality, they don't. So what you're saying is that viruses don't exist outside of a computer. Or a newspaper, right? Or people's imagination. Absolutely. So, and let me just reiterate, I'm talking about the disease causing particles that, that are viruses, not, not bacteriophages or other things that are sometimes called viruses that, that, mm. that do exist in nature. But these things like smallpox, chickenpox, right, herpes, coronavirus, HIV, Ebola, Pardon. all of these things, right? There's many, right? Uh, none of these things actually exist at all. Okay, but then what is going on there? That's the question everybody's going to ask. Chickenpox, for example. Well, you know... You have to um, look at this through a new pair of eyeglass lenses because you have been contaminated your whole life to believe a lie, right, that these things are caused by a certain thing. And you've never looked at the evidence for that, okay? But if you were to try and explain these things from the beginning, I think an important thing to look at is contagion. Right, because we another belief we have, and it's obviously a um, uh, necessary belief to believe in germ theory is this contagion, or they both depend on each other, because the germ, right, in order to cause disease, has to be passed from one sick organism to another. Now, this too has actually been studied; it hasn't been for a while because uh, all the studies had the same result. 
but it's been studied in a, in a quite a number of studies looking at, do, you know, do people who are sick pass the illness through some kind of bodily secretion, as we're told, with containing the germ from one individual to the next? And in every single experiment ever conducted in this way, in a proper way, the result has been that there's no evidence that the illness was passed from one individual to another. And it's been looked at with many viral illnesses, including uh, chicken pox, uh, with various STDs, uh, with the flu, and many other illnesses, even colds. And not in one experiment has anyone shown to be ill by this mechanism. So in order to understand what causes uh, an illness, we, we have to understand that it's, it's not actually contagious in scientific studies. So now we might observe people getting ill at the same time, but it's not, that's not the explanation or reason why. So we, we can look for other reasons and come up with other theories. Like for example, we know with colds and flu, that they occur in response to a seasonal pattern. So we can look there, right? And we can observe other things in nature that have a seasonal pattern that are quite similar to colds and flu. Like for example, leaves falling off the trees in the fall. It's right around the same time, a little bit earlier than cold and flu season hits. But I'll tell you why it's very similar, because one, the leaves that fall off the trees are also the respiratory um, or the breathing organ of the tree. In other words, their, their carbon source, the CO2, which is so demonized in another you know, um, psychological operation, comes in through holes in the leaves called stoma. And um, because you know, there's a lot of crap in the air that it gets gummed up over the course of a year. And so when, and, and, you know, of course, there's not enough sun through the winter for the plants to undergo uh, photosynthesis. So they kind of go into dormancy, like many mammals also go into a hibernation, right? Insects go into uh, uh, diastasis, I believe. My wife, my wife too. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, uh, you know, definitely, uh, we, we as humans can, uh, you know, we may live better in the tropics, but we could definitely go into hibernation in the, uh, uh, you know, in the climates where we live. Uh, absolutely. So you see that, um, so when the trees shed their leaves, right, they're, they're kind of like getting rid of the clogged up air filter that they use to breathe, and then they're going to sprout new air filters in the spring. Right. So when we talk about colds and flus, we're also talking about our air filter, right? Like the nose inside the nose, there are many mechanisms to specially treat and filter the air before it gets to our precious lungs, right? There's like turbinates, which increase the surface area. There's cilia. Um, there's uh, mucus goblet cells that moisturize. Um, there's nitric oxide is added to the air when we breathe through our nose, right? So all these important mechanisms that filter the junk out and increase the quality of the air, right? We have to renew that. It gets clogged up just like when you go to change the filter in, you know, in your car or in the heating system in your home, you'll see there's tons of crap on there. 
right? And those things aren't even working all the time, but your nose and airway is working all the time. So it has to be cleaned out. So you could, so you could come up with the hypothesis that the seasonal colds and flu are like a way for your body to clean out its air filter, just like, and it's a seasonal pattern stimulated by changes in temperature and humidity and air pressure, things like that. Um, and that's why we all experience it at the same time. Maybe not all of us, because some of us keep our air, our air filters changed throughout the year, <laughs> right? We stay ahead on the maintenance and other people kind of like, not, you know, no, I'll do it next time. And they let the stuff get really, really gummed up. So we see, you know, we're all exposed to the same temperature, humidity, et cetera. And so it sets it off for us at the same time. And that, that could be another way to explain it. Now, I don't know if that's 100% correct, because I would have to do some more scientific experiments to make a determination. But I can at least come up with a rational hypothesis to explain that and and other illnesses you know it is known uh what the cause is uh but not you know i don't believe uh for everyone what is disease or what is illness actually <laughs> well this is something else that's very uh misunderstood because we're taught that when we have uncomfortable symptoms, that that represents an illness or you know damage that is going on in our body. But actually that occurs in the phase after the damage was done, it's the healing phase, right? I mean, now we, with trauma, we're very comfortable um, observing this truth because we know, like, let's say, you know, we're uh, playing ball and uh, you know, we, slide into third but hit the base wrong and boom the ankle snaps right now we know right at that moment when the ankle snapped that's when the damage was done that was the illness right and then after that well what happens you it swells up it becomes painful right you can't walk on it you lose your function now those are not not the disease that's not the problem that's your body's healing mechanisms right like why does the bone swell up or why does the tissue around the bone swell up well that's a natural cast so that you don't move it so the bone ends stay close together so that they can heal right um so we understand that but when it comes to like what we call an infection right or other acute illnesses um when we experience the symptoms we think that's actually some microorganism eating our body from the inside and our body's duking it out trying to overcome the problem but that's not the case at all the the damage has already been done by the time we're experiencing the symptoms and the symptoms represent the body's healing function and i believe that they provide information like the reason they're unpleasant is to tell us to change what we're doing Right. And, and uh, I'll give you a, a practical example from my past with this, because, you know, when we have physical pain in other situations, we know it's information telling us to change our behavior. Right. For example, if we go to the beach on a hot day and walk around on the hot sand and bare feet, it's going to hurt. Right. And what do we do? We say, oh, shit, I better stop walking on the hot sand. I'm going to burn my feet. 
Well, I used to work with a, a young woman who had no feeling in the bottom of her feet because of diabetes. And she went walking on the beach one weekend and showed up at work on Monday in a wheelchair with second degree burns on the bottom of her feet, right? Because she didn't feel the pain. And so as a result, she did not change her behavior and continued to injure her body more. Now, when we have an acute illness and we feel the unpleasant symptoms, right? The swelling, the pain, the irritation of the secretions coming out of our you know, nose and down, dripping down our throat, et cetera. I believe that that is also telling us to change our behavior, right? Stop eating so much processed food, right? Stop drinking um, energy drinks or, you know, whatever it is uh, that is contributing to our tissue being damaged in our body. And we are never taught to interpret this properly or to listen to the signals of our body. And this is, you know, really um, misled us in our understanding of what's going on and also rob from us the opportunity to make changes that are going to have um, amazing benefits to our health. Does the modern medical industry have an impoverished view on what causes illness? Well, largely they say they don't know. <laughs> now they kind of um, put some blanket, you know, blame like, oh, it's your genes for example, or it's bad luck, or it's, you know, some ger invisible germ that's out there coming to get you. But they don't really have ready, uh, real explanations for these things. Mm. You know, um, in fact, most things you'll see is the cause unknown. Like if you get a uh, Harris's uh, textbook of medicine, for example, which is one of the standards used in medical schools in this part of the world, um, you'll see for many, many, many illnesses, cause unknown, unknown, unknown. A lot of times they try to blame a virus, but it's just completely hy hypothetical, right? Like I remember even hearing type one diabetes uh, was probably caused by a virus <laughs> when I was in medical school. I want to chat a little bit about germs not just viruses but i suspect that the principle is much the same isn't it although you can see bacteria yeah well bacteria really do exist um you know no one could deny that and they're ubiquitous in nature i mean everywhere you look uh, you're going to find them like i love this experiment that they did uh, back in the early 2000s in new york city where they went into a subway terminal and just swabbed every surface, you know, the turnstile, the uh, inside the subway car, all kinds of places. And they just cultured it and see what kind of bacteria grew. And, you know, they found all of the worst bacteria that they say caused the worst illnesses. <laughs> but the thing is that all those people who ride the subway and touched all those surfaces day in and day out, none of them got those illnesses. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, the idea that the bacteria cause these illnesses is, is another thing that is simply never been shown um, experimentally to be the case whatsoever. Um, and, and they're being blamed as the bad guy, but it, it's pretty easy to understand that bacteria 
our nature's recyclers. And now we know because of, you know, new information about the microbiome that we were essentially made of bacteria, um, like 10 to one to human cells. And that if, if we sterilized our, the bacteria out of us, which has been done in animal experiments, we would not survive more than a week or two. Louis Pasteur hated bacteria. Well, you know, he, he loved himself. I'm not sure <laughs> if he really hated bacteria, but he <laughs> certainly made his claim to fame about uh, blaming uh, bacteria for a lot of things. Does this conversation flow over into the animal world? Of course. I mean, we, you know, you could, for the purposes of understanding, uh, you know, most disease, of course, not the psychological um, and existential crises that we uh, distinctly as humans get ourselves into. Uh, although animals, I, you know, they experience grief and loss. I'm not saying they're devoid of an emotional experience, but um, but aside from those unique, um, you know, human aspects, I think we really it's all the the same part of nature. You know, if we poison animals, they get sick. If we, you know, uh, if they get injured, they have the same kind of problems or potential problems that we would. What are some hypotheses that can lead to Say, for example, chickenpox. Well, you know, chickenpox uh, can be looked at. Uh, I think there's two hypotheses I've heard which uh, seem reasonable. Um, you know, one is because the skin is expressing fluid, right, that is uh, that's purging something from the body, right? Whenever some your body gets rid of something, right, it's it's some it's probably we could call it cleansing or detoxification. Right. And that represents whatever the body's getting rid of is something that was causing uh, injury or insult. And so that could be one theory. And we could do, for example, an analysis of the um, fluid in the chickenpox and for all kinds of things and see what does it contain a toxic substance. You know, when uh, there was a huge study sponsored, I believe it was funded by the EPA, um, it was kind of buried because it was so damning, but they, they did a large um, study looking at the fat tissue or adipose tissue of Americans. And in almost all the samples, they found dioxin, which is a very uh, bad poison that, you know, it's not used, uh, allowed to be used anymore, but it, it still persists in the environment um, and in people's bodies, right? And so could you know, I wonder, like, that's evidence that suggests that obesity could be related to your body's way of storing uh, fat-soluble toxins like dioxin, right? So there, and there are many other examples. So there are, uh, for example, studies looking at um, uh, dementia patients where they find aluminum in their brain. There's studies looking at people with liver disease where they find microplastics in the liver. Right. So these things are not conclusive. They're, they're not a full scientific um, method applied, but they are observational evidence to suggest, right, that many of these ailments are caused by tox toxins that are produced by modern man. Now, the other hypothesis about chickenpox is even more interesting because it seems to occur at a certain developmental stage in children and not 
really in adults, uh, uh, with few exceptions. So for this reason, and that it, it has to do with the skin, that it could represent some kind of molting of the skin that allows the skin to stretch more perhaps over as the bones elongate and the child grows, right? And that's something also that certainly could be looked at and it could be looked at, well, is some, you know, enzyme or protein like a certain type of collagen coming out in that fluid to be replaced with a different, you know, with elastin or a different, um, you know, protein form that allows, uh, you know, more growth, right? And uh, so a very interesting hypothesis. We see obviously in other animals, right, in nature that they molt uh, as, as a way to grow bigger, like snakes, uh, you know, for example. So, you know, what I like about these ideas is, is that you can just make some simple observations out there in nature, understand what's happening with other animals like we talked about and then say, hey, could this apply to humans? You know, how do we test it using the scientific method? We could learn incredible things if we followed up on, you know, this more natural approach to science. But in the absence of viruses, what the heck is the purpose of vaccines? <laughs> well, you know, there there is no logical, rational purpose, obviously. And, you know, really, they've never been shown to reduce any disease state uh, in a population that that's just a marketing um, gimmick. Really, it's there's the data don't don't say that at all. So you could only reason that they are uh, certainly for other purposes. And one obvious one is is for wealth generation because if you look at the market size of the vaccine industry even pre-covid you'd see that it was in the order of tens of billions of dollars in the united states alone now we know that the the covid you know jabs are actually the top grossing drugs of any category of all time in all history for the pharmaceutical industry so that, that is, of course, a huge, huge incentive, regardless of, you know, whether you look into the science or not, right? Like you're like, whether they're going to help people or not, if you have the ability to make that kind of money, many people are just going to jump on board, right? And they're going to use their skills and talents to contribute to that and to take their uh, cut of the uh, cake. Now, there could be other reasons as well um, that could make people, if you know, many um, studies have shown vaccines increase all types of illnesses and disabilities. And of course, those bring about other economic opportunities. So there could be exploitation of those outcomes as well. And then plus, if you're if you're in control, and you want to take advantage of people, you need to keep them somewhat disabled and debilitated in order to do that. But there's even, you know, there's even some interesting hypotheses uh, with respect to uh, transhuman uh, agenda. And uh, that, for example, that there may be an intentional um, effort to bring about a certain variety of autism 
that might make someone more productive or controllable uh, in some kind of, you know, awful uh, future vision. Um, and there, there is some publications that come out of some think tanks, uh, you know, globalist think tanks, uh, which speak to that uh, uh, as well. So, you know, it could be all or more or any of these reasons uh, are all involved to some degree. But Andy, you know, you are not allowed to say autism and vaccine in the same sentence. We saw what happened to Andrew Wakefield. Well, you know, um, no one can tell me what I am uh, allowed to say or not. Um, you know, when I speak on certain platforms, of course, I might self-censor my language just to stay on the platform. But <laughs> in my private life, you're never going to or if you come to see me in person, you know, I, I don't um, mix words at all. I just speak, you know, what is true. And um, it, it's clearly true that, you know, almost all cases, if not all cases of autism are, are a result mm -hmm. of vaccine toxicity. It's also true that many, many cases can be reversible or even completely reversible uh, with appropriate um, efforts. Well, on my podcast, we are advocates of germ warfare theory. <laughs> <laughs> right there. Well, you know, actually, I I prefer to stay completely at peace, but I but but I'm I'm right there in support of that uh, effort as well. Why are there so many great great people? You know, trying to fight all the good fights like we are, and I'm not going to mention names but they will not go near this particular conversation. Well, you know, I, so let me first say that I do not know the motivation from any individual. Um, and, you know, the only way I would know that is if they told me <laughs> or confided in me. Although if you have kind of spoken to that issue to some degree, um, actually, so, you know, I can mention uh, those those reasons. Um, but, you know, m the reason that I talk about this is because this is simply what what is true. And, it, and it's really a foundational issue for what we've gone through the past three years, right? Like every single thing that we're all fighting against was all directly or indirectly a result of the pronouncement, you know, of a virus which in reality doesn't even exist. It was simply made up, right, in a, a psychological operation form in order to carry out all these other agendas and keep us in fear. So if you think it's irrelevant to look at that, you're, you're not really paying attention. So there are some folks who think that if you say this, that you just won't be taken seriously. You'll be, you know, seen as a kook. Um, and you know, there may be some truth to that, but if we all look at this issue and come to the same conclusion, um, and then you see, you go and turn on and one doctor and another scientist, another pharmaceutical exec after another are all saying the same thing, well, then no longer is it kooky, right? So that would be very simple to overcome. Now, there are some uh, who want to still practice medicine in the traditional way, and they would, you know, so if you have a patient that comes in with the flu and they want to, you know, a test for the flu virus or you to give them some uh, antiviral drug, well, what do you tell them? 
Well, I'm sorry to say, but um, viruses don't actually exist. You know, they'll be calling up your licensing authority and you'll be losing your license or, or be undergoing a psychiatric evaluation before long, right? Um, if you're in Australia, I think that, you know, you might face criminal penalties. <laughs> so you, right, I had to essentially leave the practice of medicine um, behind, which, of course, once I realized that all they're doing is giving out poison, I couldn't stay in that profession anyway. I had to figure out another way. But, you know, not everyone's willing to do that. Now, there are some folks who say that it's a matter of strategy, that they think, well, we can't, you know, um, have a strategy where we influence politicians. And, you know, my position is actually I don't really care about politicians. Um, I think if we just don't do what they say or listen to them, they'll just go away and we'll be able to live as real uh, men and women. But I actually have been in the office of a New York state legislator and presented the evidence that viruses don't actually exist. And you know what? His, his response was not, you're crazy, get out of my office. His response was, oh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, right there from my own personal experience, I could say that, you know, that's not, not true. Um, recently, Del Bigtree of all people who, you know, first invited me to come on his show and speak about this, uh, when I was down in Mexico in February and, and, you know, we both announced it publicly and now he stopped, uh, returning emails, um, as we were trying to plan out a date. Uh, so I'm not sure what's happening there. But on another interview, he said that if there was no virus, that um, all the accountable uh, people like, you know, Dr. Fauci would be off the hook. And uh, that that's absolutely preposterous um, because it, in actuality, the, the, he'd be guilty of a more serious crime. <laughs> right. Because it actually uh, screwed everyone over by completely lying and making shit up. Um, so, you know, we would, the only way to have justice is to have the truth because the truth is, um, you know, the, sorry, justice is essentially based on the truth, right? If you have to know who caused what harm and how, uh, in order to, uh, bring about justice, you know, which... Mm to make it whole again. You have to know what actually happened. So, so it's the other way around. If we don't appreciate and understand the full truth, we, we can't actually bring about any justice. And, you know, I'll, I'll further say that to me, it's not really important if, you know, Fauci goes to jail or gets hung or whatever, um, because even if those things do happen, they'll, they'll be a line of other psychopaths ready to take his place and carry out the same agenda. Um, and we would have the illusion that we were, you know, protected of that because uh, there was a fall guy. Um, in truth, the only way to have justice is to have it for yourself and provide it for yourself. And that means that you have to understand the truth so that you are not misled into injustice. You can mm -hmm. stay on the right path by simply doing what's right based on your understanding of the truth. And no one can take that away from you.
or if they try, then you have the right to defend yourself. And, you know, that's the way that we can actually bring about justice. If I go and submit myself to hospital treatment again, I'm not going to get just treatment. It has to be on my terms based on what I know of the truth. What is the significance of bringing down this house of cards? Well, if you take a really good look at how we are living and existing in modern times, um, you'll uncover that we're, we're not living as God or nature intended us to. Right, We essentially have to work and pay just to live when we are supposed to inherit the bounty and abundance of the earth by coming into existence. And in order to you know, start to appreciate the reality and how it mismatches the potential or the intentional, intentionality, um, it, you, know, you can experience grief. Um, or you can also have dissonance and go, you know, back into the system. But if we are to truly become free and truly live in harmonic ways with real meaning in our life and with uh, a relationship with nature, we have to go through this process. Um, and otherwise, we're going to continue to stay. And, you know, many people don't even know why they're so miserable why that there's you know so much anxiety and stress and suicide and addiction um but they know that it's not right right they know that going to that nine to five job day after day right that as soon as they get free time all they want to do is escape right but it but it just perpetrates the emptiness because there's no meaning there's no purpose there's no passion right i mean look at just things learning, right? We, we are naturally curious beings and we want to learn. But, what, but what's happened to the average man and woman is that they, they're so beat down and weakened by the weekend that they don't have the energy to learn and pursue creative expression. All they do, you know, is get the minimum chores done and then just escape, right? Drink, watch the sports, you know, shop, whatever the indulgence, uh, you know, is that that is best for each individual. That that's just where they're um, spending their time, and and we can have such a richer um, and and consequently happier existence as we're intended to, and the only path there is through real understanding of the true nature of reality. By extension, less fear because you won't worry about catching something from somebody. Yeah, well, because that's a, an irrational fear. And um, it's a tool of manipulation. Mm. We, the reason we, we probably have fear, right, is to protect against predators. Because there are, you know, predators who will even go after human young, right? And usually not adult humans, uh, although it has happened on occasion, right? And, and plus also other humans can be, can predate upon us. And so we need to have some fear response to deal with those situations or a natural disaster, you know, to motivate us to get into shelter. 
right? Mm -hmm. For example, but this, you know, humans have found out many ways to manipulate other humans. And one of the easiest and the principal ways used by, you know, governments or those telling the governments what to do is, is through creation of fear. You know, it's only really been established uh, for a lot uh, shorter period of time. Um, there was a lot more debate about it earlier on. Um, but what I think is, you know, first of all, the degree of this, you know, operation and this pandemic has kind of confronted many people to look at this issue and start to wake up. Um, so we have, you know, this kind of uh, big catalyst that occurred. And what I think will continue to drive the expansion of people accepting more of the reality of how nature works, or, you know, we could call that terrain theory or terrain uh, biology or terrain medicine, is that when you, you utilize the principles of this terrain medicine to address health problems, well, something miraculous occurs that people actually not only improve, but they get completely better. Like they can return to full health from all the things that were told by the, the other health system, um, the disease system that are incurable. And the only thing you could do is uh, suppress the symptoms with their more poison drugs. So as more individuals reverse their disease and then others observe that right oh you, you're not calling in sick to work anymore or oh my gosh you're not in a wheelchair anymore <laughs> or what really you're you're playing sports now um oh you lost so much weight wow what happened oh my your diabetes is gone they'll be like what did you do um, we can see elements of this happening. Like, for example, I've been recently um, doing some research on, I always do research on nutrition, but I've been exploring the carnivore diet and looking the, uh, right at the, and yeah. what's happened is that you can see because people observe the results, right? So they see someone who's eating a bunch of processed food crap and junk food and blah, 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 and they have autoimmune disease, for example, because that's what's most talked about in that community. And then they switch, you know, to a carnivore diet and, and boom, their autoimmune disease completely disappears, right? Then people hear about that. They're like, oh my God, I'm going to do that too, mm. right? And they don't, they don't, even many of the proponents, right, of that, they don't talk about terrain medicine, they don't they don't question germ theory, but they know that when people eat this clean carnivore diet for a period of time, they, they don't get sick anymore either. Mm. <laughs> right. They don't get colds uh, hardly as much either. Right. So they can see that the you know, by observing that, oh, if you change your lifestyle, it makes a difference. And and they don't know it, but they're actually following terrain medicine there. And men, there are many other different you know, diet trends um, that have similar stories. And this is how people can pick it up, right? We already, for example, generally people recognize the importance of the microbiome of your gut, at least in your gut, maybe not the rest of your body, but they, they accept the gut and people actually swallow 
bacteria. They're mostly dead, but they think they're alive when they swallow those pills, right? And to add bacteria to their body, right? That is terrain medicine, right? Right there. And so they're doing it already. They just haven't flipped the switch mentally to understand that, oh, this means this is really, right, the truth about health. And that other stuff, that's bunk, right? It doesn't yeah. give you the same health. And I can absolutely say that there is a, a very strong correlation between your diet, uh, your fitness, the amount of sleep you get, uh, your state of mind to well-being. Absolutely. I've, I've observed that uh, in myself and everyone else who has, you know, made changes in those areas. And I think that's also where the, where the flipped switch comes when you go, okay, hang on. Let me not treat the symptoms. Let me treat the cause. Yeah, well, you know, that it, I see how that you would flip that switch, but I think most people are just, you know, they, they still um, kind of look for explanations within the system. Um, but the, the switch that's flipped is the doctor doesn't have all the answers. I can find the answers outside of that system. And I think that, by the way, is the most important um, because that is going to lead to, you know, full uh, discovery about what really works, right? Because if, you know, it's more like a really a true free market uh, because the, the healthcare industry is a monopoly, right? They basically have a partnership with the government that uh, regulates exactly how they practice what they do. So it's pretty much uniform everywhere. They only use, you know, products from the pharmaceutical and medical device industry. They don't use products from other industries, right? Like they don't uh, use food products really. Well, except they buy really bad food for the hospital patients. <laughs> so it's a total monopolistic. But if people just say, hey, I'm not going to, I'm just going to drop out of that system except for an emergency. And I'm going to like, you know, look out there anywhere. So I might find a doctor who's talking about something different. I might find, you know, someone who just is self-taught, you know, I might go to a company that makes something and, uh, you know, find out what, what, what actually works. Like if I do this, will I, will my health really improve or will it make things worse? And through those kinds of forces of exploration, trial and error, and then like, you know, once it catches on that something is effective, everyone's going to run to it, not because of the marketing gimmicks. Those things are always short lived, right? There's, there's a lot of fads that come and uh, suddenly everyone does something or buys something and then that fades away, right? Because it's not real. But if there was stuff that really brought about health, you know, it would just keep building momentum and popularity and those sort of supply and demand, there'd be demand would increase. And then there'd be more people learning that information or selling the materials and it would be become, you know, a more predominant paradigm. And, and I think that that is happening right now and we just have to keep it going. How can I follow your work? Well, uh, please go to my website, um, andrewkaufmanmd.com. Um, sign up for my newsletter. 
that's the best way I can uh, communicate about everything I'm doing because I, I'm involved in a lot of things and have many platforms. Um, but, you know, you everyone can always find me on uh, YouTube, Odyssey, BitChute, Rumble, all the usual places, Instagram, Facebook. You haven't been banned. Well, I stopped putting content on those uh, places that uh, in order to just keep my account, but I, I've been shadow banned. Right. So, you know, I still have the same number of subscribers I had two years ago on YouTube. <laughs> Andy Kaufman, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you as always. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.